This is the Bushwick Variety Show, and I'm Alex Stevens III. Greetings, neighbors, friends, citizens of the world, and conscious beings of all various types. Thank you so much for listening to the Bushwick Variety Show. This episode features Greg Emata. Greg Emata is the writer-director of Camp Wedding, a movie that is making the rounds of film festivals, including the Bushwick Film Festival, which is playing tomorrow night, October 4th, if you're listening to this today, October 3rd, when it's released. Tomorrow night, October the 4th, at 10.30 p.m. at Syndicated, right here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, New York. So if you are around, come check that out. Me and my wife are going to be there. It's going to be a good time. Greg is part of Shelter Theater Company, a company that I'm very proud to be a part of. Uh, Cam, who was on the last episode, is also part of that company. And Morgan McGuire is also part of that company, and she stars in this movie. Uh, you can also get it if you're not able to come out to Bushwick, if you don't live in Bushwick, if you live somewhere around the world, you can download the movie on Amazon, and the links for that are in the show notes. So definitely check it out if you get the chance. Greg and I are also big fans of Bernie Sanders, so we talk about that in this conversation as well. So without further ado, this is Greg Emata. Let's have a conversation. sound purposes because you can put up to six different inputs into this thing oh so it's it also works like a mixer yeah i've seen those used as like a mic mm-hmm. um for like doc style stuff when we when i worked on um the spider-man musical in the sort of documentary promomo department they used the zooms and there was a lot of like pluralized syncing of everything it was yeah. crazy so how you doing greg <laughs> great it's nice to be here yeah so um i guess specifically we're excited about um bushwick film festival camp wedding being in that um and i know that's playing at syndicated october 4th exactly at uh 10 35 p.m so it's a nice late night screening for a quasi horror comedy. Nice. But most of the movie takes place at night, so it always feels weird if it's being screened in the middle of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like horror movies in general usually are more fun at night. They are, although I, there's a few that are like daytime ones that I think that can be really, it's like a nice challenge to have something that's scary during the day. I think of like Watcher in the Woods, which very little happens. I mean, that's a weird Disney quasi-horror 80s thing, but, you know, very little happens actually at night. There's a few like eclipse moment, but so they sort of make the day a big part of it. It also has a crazy cameo, or not even cameo, but like major role uh, by, um, oh my God, I'm blanking it now, Voyager, who's the, Betty Davis has this, it's like one of her last roles where she's just chewing up scenery and everyone else has moved on with their acting. It's great. Anyways. Nice. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that one. It's fun. I, it scared me as a kid, and then I rewatched it and was like laughing. But it also has, it also has like all these alternate endings that are pretty amazing if you watch them on YouTube because they just completely cut them from the movie. So the original movie didn't have them at all. Um, but they involve what looks like a kind of glam rock 
Skeksy from the Dark Crystal that shows up and like zaps a boyfriend and she goes to another world that looks a little bit like Dark Side of the Moon album cover as a universe. And all of this happens in this alternate ending that you never see in the original film that they just completely cut. Huh. So it's fun to watch. It's pretty, it like takes it much further. So you, I know from uh, Shelter Theater Company, of course, um, and you uh, are a writer, filmmaker. Um, where does where does that like kind of start for you? And like, where where does your focus lie? Oh, okay. Like, where? Um, yeah, I mean, I think of myself now as like a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So I like to see the projects like from the very beginning ideas to all the way through like the editing process post to finished. And I've done a lot of projects where I've just worn a lot of hats on them. Um, I try to delegate when I can, like this is probably the movie where I delegated the most, but um, I mean, there's others, I guess, where I've been just like the DP or just director, but mostly I've done this thing where I like had an idea and then I wrote something and then I like convinced people to be part of it <laughs> and then, you know, shot it sometimes myself as well and edit it with this. I had a fantastic DP um, and a lot of other, you know, like an amazing production designer and cast and a separate producer. But I've also done films, a lot of short films where it's like me and a camera and some actors or one actor, you know. Um, so so that's kind of it like runs the gamut. Um, but up until this, I'd only really done one where there was like kind of a big crew which was weirdly it was a short where we had probably a bigger crew than we had on this feature um and for people listening who might not know uh dp is director of photography um basically is the one who takes the script and comes up with like a shot list or a plan of shooting yeah usually that's a collaboration between between the the director and the dp Mm -hmm. and we had and like hiroshi hara who was the amazing dp on this and also shot the short i was talking about earlier um we had like all these meetings where we were very detailed going through all the shots and we maybe got through, I feel like the first 30 pages of like a hundred page script and we were very detailed. And then after that, we had to just kind of like wing it on set. We just ran out of time to actually talk through everything. Yeah. But at that point we'd sort of created vocabulary. We also just were so pressed to time. I mean, this was a shoot that was um, 13 days. 13 days of shooting for, you know, 100 pages is kind of, you know, that like works out to be, that's not a lot of, you know, like that's what, seven, eight pages a day, which is kind of a lot. Um, So we were just trying to scramble to get what we could, but I feel like I'm really happy with how the whole film looks and the shots we we were able to get. Um, And it's very much a collaboration between the two of us, and he had brilliant ideas that I never would have thought of. And what was the other, what was the name of the short you worked on? Oh, that was Bo's Academy. That was a short film about kind of like this elite boys preparatory school that's grooming the next generation of closeted gay Republicans. Wow. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. We got to shoot like a promo video for the school that was used in the recruitment process of one student. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah, sure. But I guess I should explain what the movie is about. Camp wedding? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's, it's, I usually just describe it as destination wedding at haunted summer camp. And it's basically about like Mia, this bride who's sort of like a bridezilla who thinks she's not a bridezilla, um, who's convinced all of her bridesmaids and wedding party that includes like a man of honor as opposed to a maid of honor, um, sort of her like gay best friend. Um, to all show up to this 
somewhat dilapidated summer camp that she's rented on Airbnb and transform it into like the wedding venue of her dreams. And some, not everyone's really on board with that, (laughs) but they're like, well, you know, it's her big day. And, uh, you know, and so they're sort of like, but she's of course not excited about their lack of enthusiasm and progress. And it's sort of all falling apart. And then in the middle of the night, people start disappearing, which doesn't help things for her. And so we, the rest of the movie is kind of her and, and the rest of the bridal party trying to figure out exactly what's happening and why people keep disappearing and their weird photos are showing up on her Instagram feed, which is bothering her because they look scary, you know, and, and they are unraveling this mystery and eventually, you know, sort of the wild history of the camp comes into play and we, you know, and some other things happen, but I won't give that away, but it basically just kind of uh, goes off the rails. Nice. Um, and do you tend to work with the same, like, how do you, oh, like, how many, okay. <laughs> uh, how many films have you made at this point or been involved with the making of? Uh, let's see. Yeah, I mean, if it's films that I've made personally, like kind of wrote and directed, it's probably, hmm, it's probably like six or seven, maybe eight. I mean, it's hard to know how you count that, mm-hmm. but like quite a few, but, but just not, I've never done really, I, I did something that was kind of like a feature. It was sort of a, a fictitious feature documentary, which consumed like almost like five years of my life and is still sort of like languishing and kind of an edit. I mean, there is a cut of it. It's a long story, but um, but it was wild because we basically were making a full documentary where I just like did improvised interviews with like probably 45 people and then shot sequences that and shot two entire biopic pick movies, like short, not the entire thing, but like a lot of them for these two characters. And so that was kind of like a feature in it's but different. And this was this is the first time doing really just a narrative feature for me. And then you've. Uh, worked in different roles in film too. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely done a lot of, probably, like I think on IMDb, I still have the most credits as like a DP. So I've shot a lot of other people's projects um, as well as my own. And I've done a lot of editing. If anything, maybe that's the most, just not necessarily of all films. For a long time, I worked being kind of a video director for Tribute documentaries. So they were like uh, for the NEA Opera Honors, National Endowment for the Arts Opera Honors, and they were just sort of like opera luminaries. And we went around my um, good friend, Car Consilvio, who is the co-story writer and executive producer of this film, and it's based on her wedding. Um, We both went around the country interviewing people and then putting together these tribute documentaries. So we got very into that kind of world. And I did a, for a while what I'd call like documercials. So they were sort of like documentaries about like a new opera production, but they were really, you know, sponsored by the company. So they were more like commercials. So they had that kind of vibe. So I did a lot of that kind of work as well. And how did you get into like filmmaking and video editing and stuff like, how did you get into that in the first place? Uh, so I went to, like my undergrad was architecture, but I got pulled into theater and started writing plays. And I was actually very like anti-film and I was like, you know, that's all trashy and commercial and the theater's where it's really at. But then I think it was my senior year in college, I just wrote a, like I somehow started to getting interested in writing screenplays. I think I got some book or watched some, I don't know where it came from. And I started writing them and I just sort of got hooked on that. And I was like, oh, maybe this is fun. 
Um, and then I went to grad school for lighting design for theater. And all throughout that, I was still kind of writing plays and, and scripts. And I took like a screenwriting class as like sort of somehow I could take this as an elective while as a lighting design student in grad school at, at Tisch at NYU. And I loved it so much. And it was like all I wanted to be doing really. <laughs> and so I continued to do that and work on it. And then about my, I think it, I went, oh, I was in a class where we had like a collaboration between the theater and quote unquote film designers. It was, our program was very much focused on theater. It was like film was sort of like a dirty word, it seemed like, even though we were in the same building as like one of the top film programs in the country. So I was in a class um, where, where we basically worked with the film directors as designers and it was called Collaboration. And we watched a bunch of movies and talked about it. And this amazing woman, Gail Siegel, taught it. And it, I was just like so excited about it and, and also seeing the film students and talking with them. And uh, that's actually where I first met Rachel Carey because she was also in that class. Gotcha. So she was in the, the grad directing film program at NYU at the same time I was there, actually in the same class as her now husband, Jeff. So. Um, so that really got me excited. And one of the students in the class, like we had to do presentations on, um, people's, uh, their thesis films so that they were going to shoot that summer. And I did mine on this one, this one guy that had this crazy film that was about like, um, a bunch of boy scouts that joined Posse Comitatus somewhere in Kansas. And were trying to blow up the County courthouse as this sort of anti-government thing. And they were also being financed by like a kind of uh, Mexican drug ring somehow and they were making meth in a meth lab and and then the Girl Scouts like get together and like take down their evil master plan and it was and then I sort of lobbied to work on that film that summer because I was taking a train across the country I like to take the train this is another thing oh my mom does that oh yeah like my mom hates flying especially like post 9-11 and she lives in Seattle and oh. she comes and visits like pretty much like at least once a year, sometimes more, and she takes the train. I've done it more times than I can count. I yeah. love it. So I forget what where I think I was going to back home or to LA, I don't know, and I found a way to like get off in the middle of Kansas. And I thought I'd rent a car, but at the time I think I was just bef- about 24. Right. And I couldn't rent a car without paying like this insane amount of money yeah. back then. They changed that I think now, but it used to be like crazy. Yeah. So I took a $100 cab that took me from like South Cent- what they called South Central Kansas to North Central Kansas to go work on this movie. It was kind of a crazy experience and the guy told me all this stuff. Anyways, so I worked on, I was like some PA and I would just have like a clipboard and I had so much fun and we were out in the, you know, it was unlike theater in a way. It was like theater, but we were always outside and like running through in the, you know, daylight. And it was just, it was an amazing time for me. And, and um, I just really enjoyed it and was hooked. And so th- probably that next fall, I guess it would have been, I decided to write and direct and make this crazy movie called Neat Freak with my roommates, starring my roommates and me, <laughs> with like not much actual film experience. I mean, I had that experience, but I'd never taken a class about how you actually use a camera. You know, I just bought like this uh, old, uh, cheap DV camera or relatively at the time. And so we shot this crazy movie that was also, I think it was like, the original cut was like 50 minutes long. So it was like almost a feature. Mm-hmm. And it was about like an obsessive compulsive ghost that was uh, sort of uh, terrorizing our apartment. And the uh, the premise was like, 
you know, a bunch of roommates get this new place. They have a, you know, a, a housewarming party. And the next morning, the place is like totally trash. But then all of a sudden, it's cleaned up. And then everyone's like, oh, thanks for cleaning up. And everyone's like, no, I didn't clean up. It's like other people like, no, I didn't. And so everyone's like, well, someone must have cleaned up. And they're like, maybe someone from the party cleaned up. And, you know, and then my character just gets obsessed with figuring out what it is and thinks it's something supernatural. No one believes him. And eventually the cleaning continues, but then it becomes sort of homicidal. So someone gets vacuumed to death. The kind of alcoholic character gets like cleaning alcohol, you know, and all this stuff keeps happening. So, and then there's a weird seance and stuff. And anyways, those characters are actually... Uh, this is what Camp Wedding is actually was, based on. Right. Yeah. So there was like all the same, even the same names. There was a Mia character that Kara played and a Gore character that I played and uh, an Alexis. And uh, so, I mean, things were different, but we, you know, we basically made that all together. And it was, I mean, we shot like 40 pages in one weekend. It was totally crazy. And then ever since then, Kara was always like, you know, maybe we should revisit that story. And so... We talked about doing it. We, went, we took a trip up to this cabin in the woods, literally, that her family had in New Hampshire that was supposedly haunted. And, it was, and we took some footage then, and that was like 10 years ago now or something. It was when we were all turning 30. Um, and we were like, oh, we could come back up here and shoot something. And then, then the family like sold it, and that didn't happen. And then she had a wedding at a summer camp. Actually, it's interesting. It's it's it was at Camp Kinderland, which is like a socialist summer camp that's also known as Commie Camp. Nice. Which where is where we wanted to shoot this, and originally there was sort of a backstory that involved like, like this zealous socialist um, camper that like burns down like a fancy rich person's camp, and then we, I eventually moved away from that. And now I'm just like I'm glad I moved away because I feel like I couldn't defend like I'd be like I'm so partial to the socialist camper. <laughs> right. And, and then it's demonizing them as like this arsonist, you know. Um anyway, that's kind of where the movie came from. Cool. I hadn't actually seen Friday the 13th at that point, so I just thought like, oh yeah, it'd be cool like if it summer camp was haunted, not thinking that this is like a huge trope in the horror genre, so but it's good. It's good to explore <laughs> these things um, and come at it from a different different angle. Yeah. Um, I haven't seen Camp Wedding yet. Actually, it is available um, on Amazon and all those platforms. It's already. available on everything now, including like Voodoo, which I don't even know what that is, but apparently it's on there. Well, so. that's sort of like this podcast um, goes out, and I know it's on Apple Podcasts and it's on Stitcher. Um, but also, like, people are like, is it on this? And I'm like, I don't know. And, yeah, usually it is because those things, they get distributed out, you know? Yeah, we have a distributor. So they just put it out on a bunch of platforms, which is great. So you can get it on those. You can rent it. You can also buy it. You can also get it on DVD and Blu-ray if you like, you know, hard media. I didn't realize that there's sort of a big game of that. And I've seen people, like, post Instagram pictures of the D- Blu-ray against their library. It's like a thing. For me, I have lost like DVDs in the past and stuff like that, or like they've gotten destroyed. So I'm, I get the argument for the hard copy, but I'm all in on the, on the digital library. Um, I know like the whole thing may crash someday, but if it does, then maybe we won't have TV. Like, you know, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, uh, I do own a digital copy, but I plan on seeing it in the theater first since that opportunity is happening 
at syndicated for me um, and a couple other places also. Right. Might as yeah. Well. We have this weird triple header happening where we're going to be actually this, and this will probably won't air by the time this happens, but this Sunday we're at revolution me film festival, which is at the Stewart cinema cafe. That's at like six thirty-five on Sunday. And that's in kind of Greenpoint area. Okay. Then we're at Bushwick film festival on the fourth, 10 35 PM. That's syndicated. At syndicated, yeah. So that's the one where you can like drink and eat while you're watching it, Brent. Yeah, and which is awesome. Um, Are you gonna be there? For that yeah, one? yeah, I'll definitely be there cool. for that. And I think Morgan McGuire, who's nice. in the movie, will also be there. Um, and then it's going to be at a new festival that's just starting this year called Deep Focus at Easy Lover Bar on October 13th. Um, I think that's at like 9:30. That's the one that doesn't have the five. It's weird. Everyone put these like 35. I don't know what's going on. Um, so yeah, we have like three in a row here in New York, which is exciting. And we'll also be up at the Adirondack uh, Film Festival up in Glen Falls, which should be cool. Um, but yeah, and when I... When is that one happening? The, oh, uh, I'd have to look that it's... Or ish. It's like the eight, 18th, 19th of October. So it's after our kind of big... Oh, excuse me. It's after our big like NYC thing is then we're up there. So, and we're up there with, um, there's another film there that like some filmmakers who've just blown up, but I met them when I was, we both had shorts at Nashville. They have this thing called greener grass that sounds awesome. So I'm excited that we're in the same festival up there. Um, yeah, so that's 18th, 19th. We have like two screenings on both days. It's, that's a, such a fun thing. Um, like last night. I was at that film festival, the Katra Film Festival, which somebody from Shelter's in, and then I knew somebody else in it. And then in the first film, I knew one of the actresses who's a friend of my wife's from Amsterdam. And then also in that one, just kind of like how small the world is, uh, the girl in Game of Thrones, she played the badass Mormont. Uh, I forget her name. I'm, I'm not going to watch Game of Thrones. I have watched it like the beginning of it and oh. then I didn't keep up. So I'm one of those terrible people that well, just, she's, just like glazes over when people talk about it and sort of walk away. And she's pretend. basically, you know, cause it's like a war thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of the older people got killed and she's like 10 or so and they have to come and get, and they're like, Oh, she's, she, you know, she'll be a shoe in, but she was like tough. And she always like stayed for, uh, you know, stood hard for like what she believed and kind of had a strong perspective. Even as like um, a 10 year old, even as a 10 year old. And, um, and then that went on like, but as soon as she appeared in game of Thrones, she like, everybody was talking about her. And now there's some memes going around. It's her, um, kind of compared her with like Greta calling out like world leaders and holding nice. them to task. Uh, but it was cool to see, her like in in that festival you know with a lot of others so it's always i don't know it's just a cool world that brings people together that that greta video is so amazing it's just i i don't know i feel like i see something like that and i'm just like it gives me so much hope that like the next generation just doesn't feel like it needs to be polite to these world leaders about an issue that's so important you know i feel like there's been almost too much deference and reverence for these people when they've been inactive. So yeah, just like seeing that rage was incredible. Like it was amazing. I was just seeing uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was talking Speaking. today about um, 
really embracing like millennials as the ones who are hopefully going to like, you know, the next generation, hopefully going to call things to task. Like they, you know, we, depending on where you identify. Cause I remember when millennials, when they first started getting called out being like, you know, I'm born in like uh, the early eighties and like when they were first called out, it was like, Oh, that's people, you know, that's, that's the like next generation. But then like listening to the specific things that they were calling out, some of the things that they were saying, I was like, wait a second, that's my generation too. Cause there's like the whole lost generation also. Um, but yeah, just this whole millennial call out culture by the like baby boomer generation is so infuriating because you're literally criticizing young people for the world that they've been handed yeah the world that's been like ruined by the irresponsibility of like the previous generations they have a much harder time now you know yeah i mean i think it's it's interesting because i've had some weird like tense discussions with people that are just a bit older than me because i feel like i've sort of straddled this in some ways yeah and I remember saying in a room of people like, oh, yeah, you know, initially I kind of had this response of working with some people that were, you know, what you would call millennials, like younger and having like being shocked that they would say things like, oh, yeah, well, I would love to finish that project. But like there's this party I want to go to or there's this band I want to see. And I'm just like, what? Like, how are you even thinking that's a good excuse not to finish work? But then I sort of started thinking, wait, you know, like if there's a whole generation that actually is prioritizing their social life over work, maybe that is going to lead to a lot better work-life balance. Right. Also, this is a generation that feels much more about like the actions of the companies they're working for than previous generations did. Yeah. And, and I presented this argument in a room full of people that are maybe like 15, 20 years older than me. And it was someone just mocked it and was just like, oh, well, you know, growing up, didn't you hope that you, you know, did you care about who the, you know, what the actions of the companies you were working for? As if like just getting a job was um, so important that no one would think about that. Like that was just such a luxury to think of, consider. And I kind of wanted to be like, well, but like, you know, how much did it, how much did your brownstone in Brooklyn cost when you bought it back then? How much right. did you pay for college? And what like, were the benefits like back then also? Right. Because it's like the actions of these companies have gotten worse and worse because people haven't been paying attention. Right. People have just been, oh, I just work hard and blah, blah. Right. I'm just a, you know, like yeah. not knowing I'm what just they're a cog. saying is I'm just a cog mm-hmm. and I don't care, but it's like the quality of life for that cog has gone steeply downhill like over the last... 40 years, really, right. but it's accelerated, you know? Yeah, and I think it's that that generation stands to also not do well in this, you know, it's like they're going to see the effects of this as well. I mean, not as much as maybe the next generation. But um, I think our friend Christine, I saw her tweet something about this, though. She was like, maybe we shouldn't be calling out this whole generation and we should be focusing on, like, the actual companies and people that perpetrated these things because I do think it's important not to just you know, generalize about yeah, a huge group too. of people when that sort of like eliminates a potential part of the coalition. Right. Because there's plenty of people that have been fighting this forever yeah. that are part of that generation. My mom would argue that yeah. in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it is important to say, you know, like there, you know, that, that statistic that some people, 
I have arguments about, but that like 70% of emissions are coming from a few major companies. Right. And it's one thing to say, well, but we're all the consumers that are supporting it. But like, you know, there's, uh, they also have the, you know, if, if we did something just about those companies, the change would be enormous. Well, because the companies are like, like affecting governmental policy. Like that's the problem. Like they, like the consumer really like a lot of power of like the citizenry has been taken away. Like safety for, for the general like populace has been eroded right over and over again um, in favor of profits for, for companies. It's crazy. Well, the thing I think about is to, to think about this in a, in a way is like, you know, we used to have really great streetcar networks all over the country. You know, like if you've ever seen, like there was a very, I think who framed Roger rabbit was like a very seminal film for me because I, I think I already had some affinity for streetcars and then just seeing this movie where there was like an evil villain destroying them and buying them up and then doing the research and finding out like this, this is something that really happened. There was this consortium of like auto companies and tire companies and they all bought up these streetcar lines um, that had like, were actually heavily regulated by the city so that they would, you know, they were forced to have like a nickel fare for this enormous amount of time. So like they were strapped financially anyways. And they didn't just decommission them. They like ripped up the tracks. Like that costs more money than just paving over it. But they did that so there was like no way they could return and then replace them with buses, which I always, I still think like, you know, the bus, uh, nothing knocking buses but like compared to a streetcar like right. you get jostled you know you can't tell exactly where they're going like to me they're almost designed to make you not like public transportation i had the craziest thing happen a couple of weeks ago uh me and laura went to rockaway mm-hmm. and uh, we took the ferry actually oh yeah and that was fun and then we got out and there were these shuttles out there so there's these shuttles out there, <laughs> these shuttle buses, and you could walk to the beach. Um, we ended up doing, there were like e-bikes you could rent, so we ended up doing that, and that was a lot of fun. But at first, we're like, oh, there's all these shuttle buses, and it's like, oh, maybe they go by the beach, and a lot of people are getting on them, and so got on one of them, and like asked the guy, like, oh, are you going to the beach? And he's like, yeah, like, yeah, I can go to the beach. I'm like, okay. And then I'm like looking on my like Google Maps and I'm like, I don't like right now there's like a lot of traffic these these shuttle buses are in and it seems like this is going the wrong way to where I want to go. And so then I ask the bus driver, I'm like, so which beach are which, which uh beach are you going to? And he's just like, I don't know, which which one are you going to? And I'm like, Well, where are you going? And he's like I don't know. Like, da, 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 da. it was like a full bus. And I was just like, Laura, we got to get off. The, and we, yeah. <laughs> we got off. But it was like the craziest <laughs> thing. I don't know who owned those shuttle buses. Right. I don't know what this bus driver's deal was. But it was like some Twilight Zone stuff. Like, this guy <laughs> really was like, I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> and I don't know that, you know, I don't know the area out there. So it was just like. No, we got to get I do always have that feeling with a bus where it's like with tracks, like there's this unconscious feeling of like, well, it, it definitely goes somewhere real. And like, you kind of know it's going, I don't know. There's a different feeling about it. Yeah. But my, I guess my point with that was just like, 
that was a huge systemic change that was made. Like a lot was invested to transform a system away from this one system that was otherwise convenient. And then all of a sudden, the only convenient thing was either you were on this bus, which was sort of frustrating, you know, or you had a car and it sort of encouraged, it made cars more convenient. And the point being that like, to turn away from that system, we need again, like a big systemic change and big investment. Because like, if you build one light rail line in a city, that's not convenient for except the people that are going from that one place to downtown or something. If you don't have a comprehensive system, like it starts to become very convenient and useful when it's comprehensive. But up until that point, it doesn't. So it's like you need to push it much further. And that's where like, if we all just decided to bike to work, like, you know, the cities are not designed for that. It's not like Amsterdam, you know, um, and it's certainly not here, but I think that's why putting the pressure on everyone's like, well, if you're taking, if you're driving or you're doing this, like if you're part of the problem, it's like, no, actually the system is the problem that we all should get together and try to fix. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, a mess here now. Like I remember when I moved to New York 11 years ago, I guess now I loved the subway system because it was like more reliable than buses and stuff like that. Like in Seattle, there's a bus oh, yeah. system. It's okay. And now they they have like light rail and stuff like that, but pretty much well they have the one line. Yeah. Yeah. And pretty much in Seattle, it's like you can bike, but you need a mountain bike cuz it's super hilly and it's 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 hard work. You can do it. Um but it's definitely changes your life like like driving versus using public transportation, you can just get around way easier. It's kind of like LA is like that too. Like there are public transportation options, but depending on where you're going, like it's just really not necessarily convenient. I actually, like I never drive in LA anymore. Do you use the car shares or? I use, but well, that made a big difference too. But like I used to, I've still, you know, I would, I've like flown into Long Beach a lot and then taken a bus to the light rail and then taken that like into Hollywood and then taking yeah. the like subway line. And everyone's always like, I was like, oh yeah, I just took the transit to get here. And people are like, what? And they're like, he just took the, tr- he took Metro here. And it's like a joke. And no one, people are always tell me they've never taken it there. And I'm like, it's actually pretty convenient and you don't have to worry about traffic. And to me, just the sitting in traffic is crazy. And when yeah. I would rent once, like, I think I rented a car once or twice and it was like a nightmare for me because yeah. it felt like the whole city was one big unpredicted left turn. People, I remember someone hucked a water bottle at me for no apparent reason. I remember like trying to get on the 405 in this little like Hyundai renter rack and like trucks were coming and I was slamming, like just flooring it and just barely making it. It was, the whole experience was like a nightmare. Yeah. So once I was like, wait, I can, you know, and the ride chairs kind of fill in the blanks now. So like if you, I'm like, oh, I'll just take the Metro line close and then I'll take the ride chair the rest of the way because there isn't a good transit option. And even just Google Maps made it so much easier to navigate the buses. Yeah. Because before I would get on a bus, they're like, oh no, this is a city of Gardenia bus. You can't, you can't even use that fare. And I'm like, what? And you know, then you're on the freeway with it and they're just like, well, you just have to get off the next stop. Like I had that experience, which was like, this is impossible to understand. Yeah. Um, New York though, like the long neglect of the mta because now it's i do it's gotten way worse mm -hmm, and i bike to work a lot when i can but you know like on days if there's like an audition or something i don't necessarily want to bike there because you have to be presentable um (laughs) but uh yeah like it's it's crazy now because even when i like i leave i give myself enough time to get somewhere 
and there's always a fear and sometimes like the trains all of a sudden delay like you're on the train and then it just stops for 10 minutes and then you don't know if you're gonna get there on time or not or how late you're gonna be and there's like nothing you can do yeah it's crazy well i've almost been here 20 years and i remember when i first got here in like 2000 it was like it was fun like i i immediately like the big reaction i had to new york is i was like oh there's just so little annoying about this city. Like I used to always be frustrated with like getting places. Yeah. I was always like avoiding driving. So I was um, always the person like walking down like the giant suburban arterial street alone, you know, looking, trying to get places. And so here I was like, oh, this is so freeing. Like I never have to drive and everything seems convenient. And there were still like trains and it felt like for the first maybe eight years or something, the train, like it felt like it always was getting better. Like things were getting renovated and it seemed like the service was better and there was more service. And then, yeah, like over the course of what you're talking about, like maybe the last 11 or like Because when I moved years. here was when they first uh, were proposing the first major fare hike. Mm-hmm. Um, and what was it when you, what was it when you got here? It was probably maybe like 72 for a week past when I got here. What was like just a one trip fare? Maybe one seventy five. Yeah, I can't quite remember. When I moved here, it was like a dollar. Yeah, but I remember like the yeah, it was it was way cheaper. And then mm-hmm. I remember when they were like announcing like the thirty days we're gonna go up to like one twenty or one yeah. or something, and there was a huge pushback. And then they delayed it, and then they're like, okay, now it'll just go to eighty five. But then of course, what they did is every year they've raised it since. So now it's. Yeah way more than what was originally proposed. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like the trains are getting any better. Well, I feel like, I mean, I'm frustrated. I, you know, I don't, I can't look into those books. Like what is it? Only governor Cuomo and the head of the MTA can actually like look at their books. Yeah. (laughs) Which is crazy, but that's what an authority is about. Um, uh, there's a, I think that's like also how Robert Moses became so powerful. It's funny. Uh, but, but like to me, I feel like all these like, stations have been renovated that felt like they weren't even that bad to begin right. with, but they're in like nice gentrifying areas. And my station up at like 157th and, and uh, Broadway has not really been touched. I mean, now we have those like fancy flat screens have been added, which I was kind of shocked that happened. Yeah. And we have like the, when the train's coming, but otherwise no, nothing's been changed. You know, it seems like they're working on the tracks, but I haven't, I'm still waiting for the express that there's a track for that. They haven't, there should be like a, rush hour express each way but it doesn't exist yet yeah so yeah have you seen like people's fantasy subway maps i get really excited about those <laughs> no oh that's the I whole think, thing maybe a, i saw one like years ago like about kind of like also like connecting brooklyn and queens a little bit more there's that x line which is awesome which suppose which is a bunch of existing rail right of way which would totally do that it's more like a circular circumferal um track that would go from like bay ridge up through Elmhurst into like Astoria somehow um, or Long Island city, which is like a fantastic idea because it's so hard. I was actually just visiting some uh, old friend of mine who had a friend who had friends in Queens and we were out there and, and someone was saying like, it's so hard to get to Brooklyn from here, like Kew gardens area. Yeah. And it's hard to get from one part of Brooklyn to another part of right. Brooklyn. And this would really kind of connect the, all those lines that kind of run parallel to Coney Island. Like yeah. it would cross them at one point. You know, I'm still waiting for like some subway that's at like 125th or something to avoid crosstown traffic. But the new Q line admittedly has made that easier because it's actually 
often faster to just go all the way down to Times Square, switch the queue and come back up the east side than yeah. waiting for one of those crosstown buses, which are kind of like a who knows. And that new system where if you get there just in time for the bus, then you miss it because you have to go to that thing. And I'm just like, make those buses free. Just can those just be free? Like, so no one, there's no fair situation. I mean, how much, I don't know. Yeah. But that's my thing is, I just think that, you know, I mean, of course I'm like a free public transit person. Yeah. Man, it should be. I mean, a few places have done it, so we'll see. What do you, uh, so after Camp Wedding, do you have anything um, already lined up that you want to work on or? Uh, yeah, like a few things. So um, the the most pressing is Emily Cannon Brown, who you know from Shelter, wrote a play called Who We Are, which is this this kind of, I think of it as almost like a neo-Western, but it's a bit of a kind of dark comedy thriller about three women or four women who are um, getting back together that used to be like high school friends and have been somewhat estranged. And then one of them shows up late and is all beaten up because there's been an altercation with um, her husband. And they're like, we have to call 911. She's like, no, we can't because he's dead. Like she hit him over the head with the frying pan. In oh, defense. right. Yeah, yeah you yeah, might yeah. have seen. Yeah. So and then we and then basically they decide that actually they kind of have to make it look like an accident because the political situation in the county means that she might really get, um, uh, she could be prosecuted for this, you know, there wouldn't be a lot of, he's like a kind of a local sports hero, so there's no sympathy for her. And things get crazier from there, but it's really exciting and we're, we've been adapting it into a film. Um, and it's, I think it's gonna be really exciting. So there's, that's sort of on a track to be produced uh, maybe as soon as December. And then I've been writing this thing based on my experiences working with a suburban ballet company. I used to go out to uh, Pennsylvania and, and work every year as like the lighting designer. This is back when I was still a lighting designer. And the drama behind the scenes at this like suburban sort of soccer moms and dads running a ballet company was off the charts. Mm-hmm. Like to me, I watched dance moms and I was like, this is nothing. Like it was just so crazy. And so uh, built around, you know, and, imagining something else I kind of built around one of the events there uh, a story and that's that's something I've been working on uh, I have a few other collaboration writing projects one is based on Car and I've been writing which is based on our experience uh, doing these tribute documentaries and that one we kind of imagine you know we sort of have characters based on us that are like this struggling uh, producer director team that are forced to make a living making like high-end pet memorial videos for like old people in, you know, retirement facilities in Phoenix. And then they get tapped out of nowhere to um, make the the lifetime achievement sort of documentary video, tribute video for Werner Herzog that will play at the Academy Awards. And they're just like, this is the most amazing thing, you know, and it's kind of like almost ridiculous that they would have been chosen for it. And then it turns out that the entire thing is actually a way to frame them for Herzog's murder. So, and that unravels and there's this crazy madcap sort of sequence at the uh, Academy Awards where they have to sneak back in and play their exonerating video based on the footage they gathered, you know, and sort of mystery they have to unravel. So that's sort of like what's going on. Cool. Um, So you don't do lighting design at all anymore? No, no. I mean, it's funny how like people will still ask me about that, but I mean, I did that it's been a long time since I've done it. I did it recently where I did video. Like my sort of day job is video projection design for opera, live events, musicals. And I do that all over the place. 
Um, and one more recent, like I think a year and a half, maybe it was two years ago now, I did a project where I was did lighting and video and it was just too much because it's like the jobs are right on top of each other. And I just much prefer doing video now. So, I mean, I like, you know, I liked doing lighting, but um, the video component just feels like a nice uh, dovetail to my filmmaking. Yeah, work. I was going to say that kind of, and it kind of seems like it's also kind of a combination. Like it's not lighting, but if it's used in a theatrical sense, understanding lighting and projection, like it is, it is lighting, like in that projection totally. is lighting. So. I think of it like you're stepping on the toes of both the lighting designer and right. the set designer. So you kind of have to understand the, both those worlds. Yeah. And so, and you know, um, so it's like, because it video projection in a theatrical context, it like, it can just be lighting. It can be like a texture that's kind of like on people. Right. And it's like, you know, but it can also be like scene painting because yeah. we can just project a texture all over the set. And suddenly it's like, we've painted it. And it can be like filmmaking because there's sometimes where it's like all the action just focuses on some video. Like I yeah. recently saw uh, a fantastic video designer, Kate Ducey, who I worked with in St. Louis. She's like, oh, I'm doing this show at Soho Rep. And she got me a ticket. And it was so, um, it was hilarious and fantastic. And it was basically about like a Berkeley, uh, which is funny because it went to, you know, that was my undergrad. But like <laughs> it was this Berkeley private school where they're, you know, having this kind of conference about various things at the school and then a whole anti-vax kind of discussion happens and like a battle happens and and they have like a facebook because there's a mumps outbreak and they have to quarantine the school and they have a video conference um uh like facebook live video conference that happens in the play and she then had this projected you know the projection design for the whole show was just the comments coming in as they're doing the facebook live and like it was incredible. I mean, it was, everyone was just howling with laughter and you could barely hear what the actors were saying. It was clearly not meant to be the focus. The focus was the comment thread that was happening. And it was such a great example of times when video design is like the main event mm -hmm. and the rest of its background. And it was so effective, you know, and it was, I, I, yeah, I couldn't get, there was this one woman that kept doing thumbs ups to everything, no matter how incendiary and crazy, but you know, and I think we've all probably been in, Facebook and or Twitter wars like yeah. that. So it was nice to see that on stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Twitter. I'm actually going to see a friend's uh, piece tonight. It's called the museum of dead words. Oh yeah. And, oh that, yeah. 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 That you, podcast. It was yeah. Awesome. Um, so I haven't seen it yet. So tonight's going to be the night. Um, but yeah, just the whole conversing on, online yeah. thing. It's well, hard. I feel like, I mean, that's an, that's an aspect of Camp Wedding, too, that I wanted, like, I had explored in a bunch of short films, sort of miscommunication via text message. Uh, I had one that was called Get the F space space K out of Paris. Like, it's meant to, I don't know why I took out the fuck, I don't know. So, and that was um, a whole short film that was premised on someone getting a text that was like, get the fuck out of Paris. Um, you have to go now, you know, and this woman freaks out and she's like, what, you know, and, th and there's a bit of an exchange and then she like packs up all of her and she, oh, she also learns that like cell phones, will, your cell phone will blow up at midnight. Everyone's cell phone blows up at midnight, you know, and she's like, oh my God, and she's in Paris. This was shot with my friend, Sarah Arland, who we've collaborated on a bunch of things. And um, I mean, I guess I'll just give it away, but like you can watch this movie online, but let's just say it, it turns out that, you know, there's just a simple miscommunication and this woman then ends up like on the top of the Eiffel tower 
and something terrible happens all just because a slight misunderstanding via text message. And I have a few others. I had like an, another, we sort of have like a, a trio of films that are kind of based around the same premise. Another one called Death by Omelette. And then I have another film with uh, my old and good friend, Wendy Young, who's also in Camp Wedding called uh, Spell Claire, which is about kind of like an evil, vengeful speak and spell. Um, so, so in a way, like I wanted to really explore this idea of kind of technology and how dangerous it can be because I feel like when you can't convey the tone of what you're saying via text message, especially, or any kind of social media interaction, like it just incites so much drama, you know? And it's funny because I feel like this is something that goes way back. Like you look at like Romeo and Juliet like miscommunication via these notes and something like a basically a t almost like a text message not arriving in time or just not sending that someone thought they sent yeah causes them to die you know it's like this kind of uh, notes showing up late or like being misinterpreted that kind of thing like has such a rich history and it i feel like we're we now ha can explore that again and that's what i was hoping to do in camp wedding there's a lot of just what seems like miscommunication and there's even a whole sequence where one person is just trying to figure out um, what kind of tone is meant by one text that's just fine. Like, I feel like there's a few words that are so dangerous, like fine, okay, no problem. Could be like, fine. Or it could be like, fine. Like, that's, uh, have, did you watch Key and Peele at all? Oh, I've seen a few of them, but I haven't, do they have a sketch like that? Oh, yeah. the one that's like, okay. Yeah, like it's like, um, <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, do you want to hang out later? Yeah, whatever. Yeah, whatever. Like, and then, uh, yeah, Key just keeps taking everything, just like, okay, you guess. And then, like, they're like meeting up at a bar, and basically he shows up and sees him, and he's like, yeah, well, and like one of them's like, yeah, we'll see what's up. And he's like, oh, we'll see what's up. And then he's like, basically shows up ready to like fight or kill the guy. And then he like sees him, and he's like making his way to him. And then somebody hands him a beer and then his friend like kind of like nods at him and he's just like, oh, like, <laughs> I think I was taking the whole thing wrong, you know? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing escalation. is like once you actually, if you would just meet in person, a lot of that would be diffused. Yeah. And I think that's also where you get these like really intense Twitter and Facebook arguments. I mean, I've been having some with some friends of mine, but it's like that it's funny because it's like often that's the big interaction that we have. And it just seems like you are touching a nerve and it's the kind of conversation where I realized that if I started, if someone brought up their point, like interjected what they did online, in real life, I may just not engage with them because I'm like, oh, just based on that, I kind of feel like, oh, I, you know, like they just have a completely different worldview and I could go down that road, but it's just like, do we want this entire evening to devolve into that? Whereas online, it's sort of a different thing where because they put that out there, I feel almost obligated to be like, well, I made this, you know, I posted something and then they're saying this thing about it that I feel like is just so false mm -hmm. or misleading or just wrong. Or I'm just like, hey, what? well, but don't you think this is clear or just I feel like wanting to clarify and defend what I've posted. And it's a very different situation than like just being in a room with that person where yeah. you don't feel like it's this big public thing either. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then also I feel like with political debates, you can also fall into think 
that and it's not it's not nothing like it's definitely doing something but you can fall into thinking that you were doing activism through Facebook yeah and usually like I don't know that that's what's happening like you you know what I mean it's a way it is a way to connect and exchange ideas but there's also real world like it has to come back to the real world also you know well yeah and I think I think there's some utility in it, but it is true. Like I was just at this like organizing event recently where they're like the least effective way to convince someone is like the, is the kind of debate argument because people sort of like almost like balkanize back into their, yeah. yeah. But what I've found sometimes in those, I mean, sometimes you just are like, I mean, this, this recent thing, I was like, how does this have 136 comments all of a sudden? And it's mostly just me and a friend of mine going back and forth. I'm like, was there a part? But there are moments where I learn things just because I'm like, well, you know, someone's like, these numbers don't add up. And then I like dug into some numbers. This was all about like Medicare for all and healthcare. And, And I was like, oh, I had no idea that like, we're already like between what is it like between Medicare, Medicaid, like the VA, and then all these other health programs, and then all the subsidies that are spent on sort of propping up um, more affordable plans under Obamacare, we're already spending $2 trillion a year. Like the government is spending that now. So when you propose something that's like even the most conservative think tank is saying is going to cost like $3 trillion a year, like that's actually not doesn't seem as crazy, right. you know, because you're or when you talk about it, like oh, over ten years, it's going to be thirty trillion. It's like, but if we're, we're already, already spending, spending twenty that. trillion, yeah, and then and this would cover everyone. Getting, yeah, we're like, already spending that, and people are going bankrupt because they get the wrong disease. Right, and we're already spending all this money, right. and it's not protecting anybody. Right, like and it's, it's like propping up that. And what frustrates me is I'm like. This industry is the, you know, we're cut, like the government covers sort of the most at risk people, like people over 65, uh, people that can't, um, that are eligible for Medicaid, which are also going to have like all kinds of other things that are negatively going to affect their health if they're in that situation. You know, they're not going to have access to a lot of other care they might be getting. Um, And so, like, what's left is mostly healthy people. And that's what this private insurance industry is like just sucking money out of. And that's what's so frustrating to me. But yeah. like, and I'm just like, if we're, we're so close, like it's not even that much more money and then everyone's covered, you know, it, and it's just throwing up these scare tactic numbers where people are like, well, 3 trillion, that's crazy. And it's like, but if you already, if we're already spending two. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you're phone banking for somebody with, uh, both, I think, mutually <laughs> supported for a while tonight, right? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see because the we were gonna the phone banking is supposed to be focused on registering. This is like phone banking for Bernie Sanders campaign, but like we're it was supposed to be focused on getting people to register for the primary because the deadline was coming up October 11th. But apparently Cuomo just signed the bill that's been on his desk, so it's now going to be like February. 14th so okay, valentine's day so now you have a lot more time but still you should register, register. because we all know what like what happened with the caban tiffany caban like all these people like thousands of votes for her that were then negated because the people hadn't switched their party affiliation in time which is insane like people went out and voted so more people actually voted but because of this stupid rule she lost so i think it's important yeah, I mean, it's still important to just do it as soon as you can, but that's the idea is we're just letting people know. I don't know if they're going to change the directive based on that, but I think it's still very important that everyone just, you know, I know a lot of people that 
had registered as different parties or non-aligned, and then you just can't vote in the primary, which is a I mean, I'm sort of against that rule yeah, anyway, but like it, it, at the very least now it's going to be much closer when there's a lot more people aware that this is coming up as opposed to in like a few, you know, in a few weeks from now when people are still kind of not thinking about the primary. What do you think of the current state of the primary? Um, I think, uh, you know, I think what's happening right now is you're seeing, um, I think Warren doing very well. She's... She's gotten a lot of good coverage in the press. And I don't think, you know, unlike Bernie Sanders, you know, and I I know a lot of people freak out when anyone talks about bias, but like it's hard when just the way everything is represented, um, like he keeps getting fact-checked for these outrageous things by the Washington Post, for instance, like endlessly that are kind of ridiculous. We're like... Headlines in the post say the same thing as what he's saying, and then they fact check him and say that it's false. And you're just not seeing that. And we'll see. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens now that like Warren is starting to be seen as a front runner. If she's going to get more scrutiny in that way, um, I still think you're. If you look at you know, despite what polls might be saying right now, this is still early. A lot of people are not engaged, especially young people. A lot of the people that are kind of his base just are not paying as much attention to the primary yet because it's coming up. You know, I always see things on Twitter where people are like, oh, Bernie's running? Like, they don't even know that this is happening yet. Uh, and you're talking about someone who has like a million individual donors that no one's ever gotten to at this point. There's a lot of ground game. Like, it was really exciting to go to that um, organizing meeting last week because it just felt like there was so much excitement and energy in the room, you know, and, and there's just not many people out there already canvassing and just, you know, registering people to vote. So I still remain very confident. It's always a little demoralizing when like a bunch of bad polls come out, but I feel like we experience that. That's always, that keeps happening and it's kind of a cycle and it's hard not to be like emotionally attached to it. But I, I mean, I remain very confident and, and, you know, I've also, I've always been a big fan of Elizabeth Warren. So like yeah. the fact that she's the other person who's Me, doing yeah, really well is like fantastic. That's you know? where I am. Like, I think that, because of the bias that's always kind of been against Bernie in a way. Um, I feel like, but that paired with like the support that he's always had, the favorability that he's always had and the consistent track record that he's always had. Um, I think, I just think him versus Donald Trump, I think he would have won then. And I think he would win now. Um, that said, yeah, like I'm glad that the other person is Elizabeth Warren um, because she would she's probably my second favorite in the race. There's some other people who I like too, but Biden to me like is just oh, yeah. not a, like for so many reasons. Like I don't one I don't believe in his platform, but also from like a political choice. I think he's a disaster. Like he's like yeah. plays right into what Trump would want to like run against. Like he's Well, I just think he's shown himself to be not barely capable of being, running a yeah, running a campaign. Yeah. And it's to me hilarious that like actually it's sort of funny 
what's now coming out with, I mean, we'll see what's going to, I mean, it seems like this stuff with Trump is like serious. We'll see yeah. where it goes. But what to me is almost the most ridiculous and shows me that like, he is just such a, like the fact that he thought Biden was the person that he'd be running against to me says a lot about his kind of like actual political, like sometimes I feel like he's made into this political genius. And I'm like, I think he has strengths with certain groups, but like, the idea that Biden was his going to be his big enemy, you know, and that was the person to like risk everything to like get Ukraine to dig up dirt on is just hilarious. It's like you really thought that was, you know, the person that you were going to be running against necessarily. I mean, I just feel like the Biden decline was something everyone predicted. And a lot of I think a lot of people were like, oh, well, he's still there. But I'm like, people are not paying attention. Like once they actually see him, you know, like that crazy speech with the record player thing not only was super offensive but just like just does not seem like someone in their right mind yeah so i and i so it's hilarious to me because i just like just imagine if bernie sanders had given that speech like it would be running nonstop on every cable news station and everyone would say that he's senile and about to die like and that he was and they'd say how like because that was it was pretty um i mean it was I'll just say it seemed pretty racist. racist? Yeah. yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, and also the other big thing is like with Castro in the last debate, he said what has been bugged, like just, he said it so plainly, just that you take credit for everything in the Obama administration, right. but then every time something's critiqued, you say you were just the vice president. You can't play both of those. Exactly. And like, all like politically, all he would have to do is choose which things to like to acknowledge, oh, we made a mistake here. You know what I mean? Right. Like that is what you want. And that's the problem with, I mean, well, that's, <laughs> there's many things that are wrong with like what Trump is doing as and why he's not a leader. But like to me, a leader can acknowledge mistakes too mm-hmm. like that's what makes you a good leader it's like mm-hmm. it's not that you're always right you're not gonna be like you know you're a human but like a good leader can say we didn't do this thing quite right here's what we learned right and like that's not once what he said so yeah yeah, yeah i don't it's in the yeah i think we'll, we'll see how this plays out i mean i think I think it's we shouldn't be shy about acknowledging that there are differences between Warren and Sanders, especially yeah. on like foreign policy, and um, and their plans are different. So I don't think there's anything wrong with drawing those parallels, but also making it clear that both of them are better than pretty much everyone else in the field. And it was interesting the thing with Castro is like I thought that was an excellent point, and I think that probably played well. However, his thing about asking him if he was like couldn't remember what he had said earlier, it seems like. Like when you actually dug into it, it seemed like maybe he wasn't so off like Biden. And then that seems to have really negatively affected Castro. So I guess it's weird how these things play out where people then see like, but which is odd because I also feel like, like you can like, yeah, there might've been that and he might've been playing that card, but also holding people accountable for what they just said. Yeah. You know, well, I think it's it's hard to understand what his position really like his healthcare plan is or what his position is. Like someone just asked me on Twitter, they're like, "Well, are you really saying that the Warren Sanders plan, you know, Medicare for all, is more popular than Biden's plan?" I'm like, 
does anyone know what Biden's plan is? Right. Like, it, that hasn't been vetted. And actually, it kind of seems like more Americans are on board for Medicare for all. Like when, you know what I mean? They might when you not... actually make, when you actually tell them what it really is. Yeah. Because a lot of them don't even understand that there are no premiums and copays and deductibles. Like yeah. They don't realize that often. They just think it's like Medicare. So, you know, but they Sanders, don't... Sanders did this actually in the Fox News town hall that he yeah. did. He like, they're like, well, what about like this? I think it was about Medicare. And he was yeah. like, okay, well, <laughs> what if you had this, this, this? And he got like a standing ovation. Oh yeah. For no, it. they, yeah. it was the, would you give up your, they were like, okay, who has private, you know, employee sponsored insurance. And he's like, who would give that up for this plan? It, because it means no co-pays, no deductibles, and you never lose it if you lose your job or your employment situation stay, changes. And then like everyone stood up in a Fox town hall. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I feel like if you make that case, you even see it when people like they get weary when they say eliminate private insurance until you tell them that you still have coverage and you can keep your doctor in hospital. And then actually the support goes up. Yeah. So, and I, it's funny when people say like, we need to build on the ACA. I'm like, well then just expand Medicaid to everyone. Like that was the best part about the ACA expanding Medicaid. So if you, everyone, I mean, you could call it Medicaid for all. It's the same idea. Like that coverage is better than Medicare. Like that's basically what it is. And that would still be expanding on the the ACA. It'd be like doing, it'd be like super ACA on steroids. There's nothing, you know, and then you can call it like an extension of the Obama plan, whatever. Like it definitely was an improvement, but then just get rid of the part of it that's just basically subsidizing private insurance and just give everyone Medicaid. Yeah. You might as well, you know, so, and then you can say you're, you know, because that talking point to me is incredibly misleading because it's like saying that otherwise we're destroying his legacy or we're destroying Obamacare. It's like, no, you're just, building on it yeah like i don't understand you know like that's what he even wanted a public option originally yeah supposedly so anyway um but yeah i think it's, we'll see how this we'll see how this all plays out i mean it's still in some ways early we have another debate um you know i was someone was like oh you should look at the polling what it was like in 07 like at this point and like you know that's when even john Kerry's name was in the polls so you know, and, and uh, Clinton was way ahead and Edwards was like in the basement and then came in second in Iowa. You know, they all came very close together. So it's you never know what's going to happen, especially with Iowa's crazy. So, yeah. Uh, do you still act at all, too? Uh, I mean, nah. you do some like, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I guess I I mean, at shelter, I'll occasionally be called in to be like some kind of, uh, I like it when I'm some kind of either evil, like I think I was a demon most recently, and then sometimes like professorial characters, those seem to work out. But otherwise, it's funny how people will choose me and I'm just like, I'm not really, I don't really act. But I did act a lot in in high school and college more. Um, but I just don't, especially on stage, I get very nervous actually. Like it's much easier now for me to, do like talkbacks about a film, but like the last time I was really on stage with like lines memorized, that was a nightmare for me. So I film is, you know, like I've done some film stuff and I was in the original like neat freak movie, which is, you know, but I don't think it's, I mean, my dream is always like all I ever want is like to be one of those people that is randomly pulled in to be like a bond villain or something like that. Like where someone who doesn't normally act is pulled into something like that would be of course amazing. You know, um, I could just like pet some weird pet and say things about like, um, you know, mock some some superhero. I don't know. Be fun. But I don't really. Yeah, I wouldn't say that I do much of that. Yeah. 
Um, and you favor film in general over theater now or, um, I guess just in terms of what I'm making, like, I mean, I work so much in theater, I guess you could say, you know, and opera and musicals and stuff. So, but like for my own projects, I definitely, yeah, I like the film medium more. I mean, I, I've done plays definitely in the past, but, uh, and, and there, there are moments when I see plays and I'm like, oh, I forget how just anything can happen on stage. And it's so, it can be so magical, but I don't know. I think I really connect with sort of the visceral quality of film. There's also the magic of when something magical happens on set that was recorded because on stage, like it's not. Yeah. And even if it is, it's not the same thing. That is something absolutely that I love about film is like the control you have and the fact that it's like every rehearsal in some ways was recorded and you can just pull the best pieces. Yeah. That is really great. I mean, it's also can be frustrating in some ways because you feel like you get so few chances. Uh, and then there's all these other technical things. Like it's like, oh, well, that was the best performance, but this something visually was... went wrong. But oh my God. I mean, we did this a lot on Camp Wedding. I've done this in a lot of movies where you just throw a different line reading from a different take into one, a different visual take and no one can tell. Like it's amazing, especially if it's the same person's voice, they're saying the same line or ish, you know, and you can change that. And that can be really, that can be very powerful too. So you have just all these options to work with, which can be overwhelming too, you know, but yeah. Do you, uh, have you built on kind of, you work with like some of the same people to like make you know what I mean? Like when you're making a new film, you call on some of the same people. To, absolutely. absolutely. Cause so, you have like language and yeah, especially the post sort of team. Like I've worked now with, uh, Doug Johnson is the sound designer and sound mixer for this. And I've worked with him on so many film. Like it goes way back to something I directed that someone else wrote that he just happened to be like someone, I think he got contacted on Craigslist or something and became the editor and I remember going to that, and he's he's also a he also does uh, picture editing, but is more known as a sound designer, and he's also an amazing writer. So he just has like a great mind about like a sort of movie mind and and story mind too, which is very helpful. And uh, like I really appreciate also his notes on the film. Anyway, we worked on this one thing like, and I didn't know him, and I came in for it to see a rough cut. And it was like unbelievable. I was like, "This is not This is like almost finished." And you also solved a lot of the like script issues, you know. Um, he just made cuts, you know. In this, it wasn't my script, so I guess maybe I was more forgiving about that. Um, and and we've worked together kind of ever since then. And he adds so much to the process, uh, and is also just an, a wonderful person to work with. So you said he's an editor. Or what? He's the sound designer and you know mixer sound editor Mm -hmm. does he does all those jobs basically and i've worked with him on everything practically now uh and then andrew m edwards is the composer i've worked on ever since that boys school movie i talked about he actually i originally was starting to work with an old friend of mine on it and it just wasn't like the tone we i think are just his style and what i was going for in the movie weren't really gelling and and, and Drew had reached out to me when I had a Kickstarter and was like, hey, this looks like a really interesting project. Like I, you know, taught at a boys school and, you know, and I'm also, you know, and he's like, this also mirrors some of my own life experience and everything. And so I was like, oh, cool. You know, and, and, and if you don't have a composer, I'd be interested in it. And then when things didn't kind of work out with the um, 
with a friend of mine, I mean, it was just mutual kind of like, oh, well, we should, you should check out someone else. And I was like, yeah, maybe that seems like a good idea. I went to him and we just got on great. And I've worked with on him on this is like, this feature is what, like the fifth or sixth project we've done. So, and it, you know, and every project's been kind of different. And this was certainly one where, and I feel like I'm very picky about music and he just delivered an incredible score. Uh, and we went back and forth on certain things, but I'm so happy with it. And it kind of is a little bit like, John Carpenter esque, but it also has uh, he's he's a big like um, uh, Doctor Who fan, and it mm-hmm. has that kind of BBC yeah that era quality. Uh, and then there's just moments where like there's this one part that I just think of like this is like this character's 1980s sitcom like out of nowhere where he's just like goes on dates and and like has different outfits. And there's this one sort of like costume change sequence that has that music and it like just sounds like it's from that time. It's great. Nice. So and it had to have a sort of 80s vibe as well. You know, obviously that's Carpenter, too, but it's sort of a lighter comedy vibe. Um so it was great. But we also like just choosing where the music goes and not is always fun with him. And uh, yeah, he did just amazing and a lot of work and dealt with all my crazy notes. So. And how did, did you do a fun, did you do like a Kickstarter for Camp Wedding or how did you go about fundraising for this one? So I, with that short, I'd done a Kickstarter and I kind of felt like it was just me like begging friends for money. I have, yeah, I have a thought about this, but go ahead. Yeah, I would love to hear your thing. And so after that, I was like, I can't go back to them again with another project. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to like see how much savings I can get together um, and how much like a little debt I can go into on this. And just we're going to, that's going to be the number like for the movie. And, and it was very low. And the first few producers I talked to were like, is there any way you can fundraise more? And I was like, no. There's just, I don't know. Like, I we don't have time to, like, do a big campaign. And, like, if you have some connections, maybe. But I kind of just want to do it for this amount. Um, and they seemed very, you know, trepidatious about that. And then I interviewed Josh Folan, who became the producer. Uh, and he was, I was like, I was like, well, what do you think about this number? You know, this budget number? He's like, oh, I've done, you know, I've done features for, like, half that practically. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I was like, how can I scare you in other ways about this process? And he just felt so unfazed by all of it and unafraid. And, you know, we basically pulled it off. I mean, there's certainly been other costs down the road and some post stuff. And, you know, I'm sure it's not exactly what I was hoping for, but it's all worked out. And it's over such a long, you know, it was like three years of the process. I mean, we're about three years from when we shot it. And so that was a good amount of time to like make up a lot of that money and just working, you know, um, so that's that's just what I did, you know. It was just about going dipping into savings, and I was like, this way at least I don't feel like I've like, you know, taken stuff from other people, and I don't necessarily owe them. Uh, you know, I'm, we did definitely pay everyone something decent. You know, we 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 you know it was SAG. Technically, we were uh, I think it's like ultra low budget is what we were. So I felt like you know I mean obviously that's not. I feel like I wish we could pay people more, but. Um, I think everyone was sort of equally invested and everyone has points in the project if, if we, something amazing happened, you know? Um, but so, that was the, I, I avoided the crowdfunding yeah. route. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it could be something to consider next time, depending on like, so it's like this project gets out and people see it. Um, have you heard of the guy, Seth Godin? Uh, no. I've got big into him like this year. Um, he's kind of like a business coach and Hmm. like he has a book called this is marketing, but he's very much 
instead of his his concept of marketing is not that you try to do mass marketing is that you make things for the smallest viable audience and you build from there so you don't try to build big mm-hmm. you like build small and like try to make build good basically mm-hmm. and then his thing with kickstarter is a lot of people saw some of the early success of like kickstarter um like I forget her name but this one musician she wanted to try something different i think maybe it was let go of her label but had a fan base and so put it out there to her fans like hey you know i want to make this album but i'm going to do it independent right. and then her fans did i think she made like a million bucks or whatever on pre-orders or something but she already had that fan base right. so basically what he says about kickstarter is it's not shouldn't be called kickstarter it should be called kick finisher <laughs> so if you already have like a a fan base you know what i mean if you yeah. already have like like a bunch of people like that then then it works but otherwise yeah it's that's my experience of it too is like it's you're asking people in your network and you know maybe they will support but it's it's hard yeah and it I've, seems like a lot of times i know a lot of people it's like more trouble than it's worth like the amount of energy you put into the kickstarter and money sometimes like yeah. you maybe should just yeah put it into the project and when i did the kickstarter like the kickstarter campaign ended a few days before we began shooting which i don't know what i was thinking that that was a good idea so it was yeah. like all the pre-production was also running the kickstarter campaign yeah which was craziness so mm-hmm. so yeah I, I think kick kick finisher is a great way to describe it because it does make it makes total sense if you have an existing fan base because then then they will crowdfund your next project yeah because that's the people you know otherwise you are just relying on friends you know who are your fan base for you you know and and it's like i remember one of the early ones was like charlie kaufman wanted to make an animated movie and it was like that was just you know that was funded almost immediately because everyone knows him so of course there's a huge advantage if you have an existing fan base also kickstarter is kind of having a whole like union busting thing going on right now so that i think people should be aware of and to put pressure on and a lot of people have actually signed up if you're a kickstarter like i had a project so i was able to sign up for it that basically says like you should let your workers unionize yeah so but regardless of that like i think uh yeah yeah it's just it's not i think if you're starting out like there's other ways to approach it and i do think what like that idea of like focusing on a small audience this is something that we're i think experiencing a challenge with with this movie right now is like the distributor and everyone kind of put it out there as this like it kind of went to the horror audience and and i think there's very strong expectations from that audience like of like all this gore and a lot of apparently like full frontal female nudity, which I was not, I mean, I kind of knew that was there. I've seen those Mm. movies, but like, I didn't think that everyone was so like disappointed not to experience that. Um, And so we've gotten some very like uh, negative IMDB feedback. And then there's people that you now, I'm starting to see, I mean, we saw this all along, but like there's people that just then really also really love it. And we had this experience at, the first film festival we went to where people were walking up to us in the lobby just saying they enjoyed the film so much and it wasn't like anything they'd seen before and the way it handled social media and stuff so i feel like yeah there's an audience there and it is key to like try to get to those people that really connect with it and we also got like a lot of great reviews so um it's 
I think that's the challenge though, is to find that audience. And sometimes you do have to cast a wide net to yeah. even get them, but it is hard when they see, you know, uh, and I think that the amazing cover art by Jonathan Ashley, who you know too, uh, is so good. But I think some people have thought that they expect a slasher movie, you know, which in some ways it's like us, it's like the patina of a slasher movie, but it's not, you know, the tone of it is much more comedic and dry and sarcastic, you know, which is also not everyone's cup of tea. So it's the just... The other thing I'll also tell you with uh, listening to, you know, receiving, of course, like, you know, people say, like, ignore the reviews, but uh-huh. that's easier said than done. Because, <laughs> yes. But um, the other thing Seth Godin says, he has a blog um, and a, um, a podcast called Akimbo, which are both fantastic, oh, by cool. the way. Um one of them is Check also shun the non-believers. So it's and and what he's talking about is, yeah, with building that smallest viable audience, yeah, it shouldn't be for everybody. Like the things, especially with art, like art shouldn't be for everybody. Not to say there is an art that's more right. pop art or whatever, but like if it's general, if it's like pop art, one of my. One of my other mentors uh, said the other day that, like, if you're an actor trying to appeal to everybody, you're an item on a New York diner menu. Um, (laughs) There's just, and Seth says this too, sort of, like, there's just so many options. There's, like, pages and pages of options. So I'll just have the usual. Yeah. So that's probably, some people just want to be the usual, but, like... If you have something to say, then there's something in that. And it's not for everybody. And that's a good thing. You're not the usual, you know? Well, there was some reviews, like IMDb reviews. I even did like a little kind of mini campaign about this where I like did picture stills from the movie with people, re- like the people in the movie on their phones, which is a lot of the movie, you know? And they're like reading the reviews, the the actors. And um, because they were just the reviews, the negative reviews were in some ways like hilarious and also almost like backhanded like one of them was something like the title was like all over the place cheese fest. And I'm like, okay, already I'm like, I'm, I'm accept. Sure. That sounds fun. You know? And then it said something like, was there a drop of blood in this movie? I don't think there was, you know? And it was like, I saw like a, um, talking, you know, a possessed Teddy Ruxpin, a lynched cabbage patch kid. And, but you know, and all the, it just went on this crazy list and it's like, and it's, and a friend of mine was like, Oh, those are all the reasons I like the movie, you know? And right. Then, but at the end of that list, it's like, yeah, this is a no. And I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Like all these things that I think a lot of people might appeal to them, you actually don't like, but you're almost to me selling it with this review. I'm sold on possessed Teddy Ruxpin. That's, (laughs) I'm I'm excited about that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, that's, to me, this was also about exploring a kind of 80s nostalgia that we're all in, but I definitely have. What is the best place for people to follow you and follow like what you're working on? So. I would say if you want to follow the work and not so much the politics, <laughs> you should uh, you can go to like um, Camp Wedding Movie on Facebook it is the Facebook page where most of the updates happen. We also if you go to at Minor Apoc, so Minor M I N O R A P O C. It's short for Minor Apocalypse, which is my production company. So at Minor Apoc, either the Instagram or the Twitter, that's all going to be like film related. Um, my more politically charged Twitter handle is just at Emeta, E M E T A Z, my last name. Um, so you can follow 
uh, updates there on everything. And like like we said, you can you can if you want to view the movie, it's it's on Amazon, iTunes, Vudu, like what like Microsoft something, yeah, Google, like, uh, the Xbox Vimeo, has the video, yeah, yeah Vimeo um, streaming or or premium or something, whatever. And uh, there's another one, Xbox. Yeah, yeah, it's like video game. Yeah, because that's what like the Microsoft thing. Yeah. I like it. Like the weird TVs that are in Samsung smart fridges. Not yet, but we'll see. Yeah. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about hmm. today? No, I think that, unless you have anything else to cover, I think that sums up. We I feel like my entire life was just like <laughs> poured out. So apologies. Well, no, thank you for sitting down and talking with me. I look forward to seeing, seeing this uh, next Friday. At, awesome. uh, syndicated that's october 4th that's at 10 35 it's part of the bushwick film festival which seems to be a really great festival really exciting to be part of it nice so i hope you enjoy it and uh do you have any final thoughts you want to leave um hmm. uh everyone should also see the dark crystal age of resistance series because it is such an encapsulation of our time right now oh, wow. politically there's just this one section that I posted about recently. And I mean, no, when I post something myself, like no one ever, I get like three likes. It's hilarious. But I've had a skek, hashtag, skex, uh, hashtag Skeksis um, hashtag I've been trying to start, which is all about like, if, you, if anyone knows the original movie, the Skeksis are kind of these old, evil, like bird-like crone yeah. figures that are obsessed with living forever in power. And they're just pure corruption. And so I've kind of equated people like, and they and weirdly they often resemble people like Sheldon Adelson and Jeff Bezos and like there's one that could be like a kind of you know they look sort of like these old billionaires, and so when you watch this new series it's almost like I'm like did I, did they just read my threads and then make the series out of them because <laughs> there's amazing moments of just um, wild class analysis and everything there's this great moment where Chamberlain who's the the great one that Simon Pegg does that does the I can't do it right now, but he does like this whimper sound. That's great. Um, he's like talking to the Gelfling, which is sort of the underling character. These are like the good people that inhabit the planet and they're ruled by the Skeksis. And we actually see what it's like when they're kind of just thought of as these Lords that they look up to. And he says like, uh, he's like, you know, but we're, but we're your slaves. And he's like, but are the Gelfling slaves if they don't know they're slaves because they're happy and they're drinking and they have food you know, it's like if they're just going about their life and, you know, they seem to have things, are they actually, you know, and they don't realize they're slaves, are they slaves? Uh, and then he makes a point about how, like, the, the Skeksis live forever and the Gelfling don't live very long, so so they should be more important. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, like, all about capitalism. It's all about, like, this huge wealth and uh, this new, like, wealth and life expectancy divide where, like, poor people just live way less longer than rich people. And then he basically says, like, you have a choice. Either you will be, you, you are our pets or we're enemies. And I was like, to me, that is a choice that we do have. It's like either we sort of cowtown and, like, consider these people, these overlords that we have to please and placate. Or we consider them, you know, and what they've done, enemies that need to be not necessarily overthrown in a violent revolution, but, like, the systems that put there need to change. You know, mm. like if, if a candidate is just like, well, you know, bil like it's kind of the Biden thing of like, well, the billionaires aren't the problem. It's like, yeah, 
if they if we don't call them out like who is the problem then then, mm-hmm. then everything just sort of happened like no one's responsible and that's where you know like a trump comes in and says that the immigrants are the problem right or the poor people mooching are the problem because then there is someone to point to and if you don't have anyone to point to like i feel like that is a kind of what is it the socialism or barbarism is the kind of world the choice that we have well, that's a great <laughs> great uh final thought and i i look forward to seeing that too that's been on my it's on my list definitely um, but i haven't started it yet so highly addictive cool uh well thank you very much and i look forward to seeing the film and i look forward to seeing you of course in in shelter sundays you too thanks a lot so that was my conversation with greg imata again if you are listening to this the day it comes out Note that the Bushwick Film Festival is playing this Friday, October 4th at 10.35 p.m. at Syndicated. Great little movie theater bar right here in Bushwick, Brooklyn, New York. And you can also download Camp Wedding through the show notes. There will be links to that in the show notes. So check it out. Support independent film. And check out Shelter Theater Company if you want to get involved with a great theater company based here in New York with a wonderful community of people. Thank you very much for listening to the Bushwick Variety Show. If you enjoy this episode and if you enjoy these podcasts, please subscribe, rate, review, share, and holler at me online or in person. Thank you very much. Do your thing. Share it with the world. Peace. (laughs) 